So today, the enemy-making machine. We got any golfers in the house? Okay, any, uh, any golfers that golf in double digits? We got any of those in the house? Okay, triple digits. Yeah, let's let, triple digits. Let's get full confession here, triple digits. Okay, so I, I started playing golf when I started working at SunWest because our lead pastor at the time really liked golf. And so we'd go on pastor retreats, and those retreats were basically um, days of playing golf together. Um, and, uh, and so they were really frustrating at first. Uh, and then, so I had that going on, and then I would go to these pastors, uh, you know, charity golf tournaments, and I'd go and I'd be, you know, you'd do the best ball tournament. You guys played that before, right? And you have to take three drives, and we'd be on hole 16, and like, uh, and they hadn't used any three of my drives yet. And I did a few years of this, just feeling like, and I'm a competitive person, right? And I, I just couldn't handle this idea, like, I was letting my team down every single time, uh, and... And I was the reason that we were finishing last instead of actually being competitive. And so I, I kind of took on being competitive. I'm like, I got to learn. I got to learn about golf. I like, I got to figure this out. And so if you go to a golf course, uh, apparently there's rules, expectations, culture uh, that is way different than the rest of the world, right? Like, I show up. You know, I first start playing. I show up in my sneakers. Uh, I show up in a shirt like this. And then I get told that I'm not allowed to play. It's like, what, nobody, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you got to dress, I guess you got to dress the part, right? You can't play in jeans. Uh, so I, you got to wear the proper clothing to play. And then you get there and guys are like using words like eagle and bogey and uh, birdie. And, and, you know, you're booking and, and, and they say, is, is that going to be a foursome? And I'm like, what, is, what does that even mean? It's like, like someone please ex explain this game to me, uh, there's all this language, you know, there's, there's rules, you get out there, you know, driving the cart, and it's fun, you drive all over the place, but then you got like these policemen that they call marshals that come and tell you, you got to drive in like straight lines onto the, onto the course and back to the path, and like nobody explains these things to me. I learned that you're not allowed to throw golf clubs, which I did a lot in my first couple of rounds. I said, that's actually a hazard to other golfers, you got to keep them on your hands. I was like, okay. I learned that... Uh, you know, I shot 125, and I thought that was good. And, th and then they said the guy that shot 81, and that just didn't make sense to me. But someone had to explain that it goes the other way. And I, I, I think when many people come into church, it's a similar experience. They walk into a place that has a subculture and expectations and rules, and it takes time to figure it out. And maybe you're visiting Sunwest, you've been to other churches like, well, that church is different, this church does this, this church, you know, people dress like this here and they don't, they dress differently here and uh, this is okay here and not okay here and it's like, who's going to explain the rules to you? And then you start to think about who's in and who's out. What, what, what are the behaviors, uh, what's the wardrobe, what's the lingo, what's the, what, what are the pieces that, that make you in and make you out? I think for many of us, church is like, going to a golf course for the first time, trying to figure out all the rules. And then this idea of who's in and out starts to create an us and a them. And this is what I'm going to refer to this morning as the enemy-making machine. I, I want to understand what's behind that, how it works, why it happens, and what to do about it.
It starts with beliefs. It starts with beliefs. We, we believe, as Christians, we believe something. We believe in the Bible, right? Can I get an amen? No amen for believe. We, we believe in the Bible that this is the Word of God. Right? When, when we read the Bible, we, we recognize that the Bible tells us truth. It tells us things. It tells us how to live. It tells us how to relate to other people. It, it lets us know what's expected, what God expects of us. And so we have a belief system. We have things that we confess together. We are about this. And then, and then we got to figure out how to work those beliefs out in our world. God gave us his word to basically reveal himself to us so, so we would know how to live. And so we begin to live those beliefs out in our, our world, and then they turn into distinctives. Everybody say distinctives. So often a distinctive is formed around a crisis. Let me l- use an example. Alcoholism in Britain and North America in the 18th and 19th century was running rampant. And so there was a movement among the church. There was a, uh, by people like John Wesley, who started calling for holiness, who started calling for sanctification, the same ideas we were talking about last week. It's important how you live, and uh, being addicted to alcohol and being a, a drunk is, is it's not good for your body, it's not good for your relationship with the Lord, it's not good for those people that live around you and have to live with you. And so John Wesley and others started calling for holiness, for sanctification. That was a distinctive. Other examples, in the 20th century, in the Industrial Revolution, people were working like crazy, it was destroying lives, and, and people were becoming aware that there was uh, these abuses that were having uh, between those who were owners and those who were involved in the working class, and there were social justice issues, and so there was a movement to the church to respond to social justice. And that kind of took the form of what would later be called mainline Protestantism, if I can use big words, but all that means there's a group of churches that said, you know, social justice is important. We think, we think that how God uh, is represented and how his justice works on, on earth is important. At the same time, there's another group of people that believe that, uh, gathering of Christians that believe that sharing the good news, talking about what God has done was important. Especially when you look at passages in Matthew uh, that, say, that says in Matthew 24, 14, that after the gospel had been preached among all nations, you know, that this that Jesus would come when this would happen. And so then the focus for some, some churches was, well, well we got to preach the gospel everywhere because Jesus is going to come back when we preach the gospel, and that was combined with some other ideas. But pretty soon, you had groups with different distinctives. We focus on social justice. Why would you focus on t- social justice when God's called you to preach the gospel? Both belief systems that are in Scripture Ideas that are within Scripture, but in the context and the crisis that might have been going on at that time became distinctives. Is this making sense? Nope. Okay. Thank you. We got somebody with me. Is it making sense to anybody else? Okay. There we go. So, in each of these cases, the distinctive started out as really important truths that help Christians navigate how to follow Jesus in a certain time, in a certain culture. But these distinctives, as they became more uh, as the group kind of rallied around these distinctives, they became the reason that groups met. They solidified themselves as the essence of the group's identity. 
And so distinctives actually move into banners. What's a banner? Well, this is a banner. We don't drink alcohol. Now think about the development of that idea. Started in a good place. Started with the belief system. No drinking becomes so central to the group's identity that members now begin to identify who's in and who's out of the group based on whether they agree with the distinctives of that group. I remember in high school, I was going to youth group. We had a couple of strong youth groups uh, in the town that I grew up in, and I had a bunch of friends in youth group, and I remember uh, there was one of my friends, and I'm just going to call him Bill, just for the sake of it. Protect his identity, but Bill decided one weekend that he was going to go partying with his friends. And remember, when you live in a small town, you know what everybody does. Okay, there's, there's a bar in the town, and if you're a Christian, you don't go to the bar. Okay? And, and I remember Bill decided he was going to go without, with some other kids from high school, and he was going to go to a party. And then word on the street was that Bill got drunk at the party. That he drank alcohol, he got drunk at the party, and from that point on, Bill never came to youth group ever again. I remember conversations in the youth group like, you know what Bill did? Bill did this. Well, he's out. We cast him to the, into the hands of Satan because he, he went, he's one of them. He's one of them. He drank beer. He drank too much beer. And we laugh, but some, some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because you grew up in places like that. And if you didn't grow up where alcohol was the thing, you maybe grew up where there was a different banner. But this is what happens. This is the enemy machine actually being set into motion. It divides an us against them. Enemies are birthed. And I'm using drinking as an example. But there's lots of examples. Thinking about the churches facing the horrors of racism. Uncertainty in our culture right now over sexuality and gender. Immigrants and other religions along with immigrants moving into Canada living next door to you. New questions on social justice. Questions around, you know, marriage and the sanctity of marriage. So how, how do we actually become like Christ in our current culture? And I want to talk about the enemy-making machine because unless you're aware of how this whole system and machine works... I think it's very easy for all of us to get caught up in it in some form. So as a result of these banners, as a result of these, these kind of lines that we draw, it rallies people against a group and odd, against the concept. That's part of the, its power to galvanize people around a certain cause or an idea. You know, there's, and there's anger involved and sometimes there's hurt involved and it's, e it's always easy to gather a group when you can identify what you're against. And so we'll be, we, we're tempted to play, um, you know, and we see this in the political world, in politics, this game where we identify enemies, and then by identifying an enemy, we can rally people around our idea and our cause, and especially when we're convinced that our cause is holy and it's right and it's true, especially if we believe that it's God's truth, the, mo the motivation for getting this machine going is significant. We can discern whether distinctive has, has become a banner by asking, can this banner make sense apart from describing who or what we're against? 
If all you're talking about is them or those or that idea or what we're against, and your conversation is actually not what you're for, then it's a pretty good indication that the enemy-making machine is at work. I grew up in a small town, like I said, and there's farm communities around my town. My grandpa owned a farm and that, that my uncle eventually owned, and it was a cattle farm. Uh, and as you can tell, if you know me, I didn't spend a lot of time on the farm, but I spent a little bit of time on the farm, and I had a few good adventures chasing cattle. You know, we had fences, and the cattle would kind of get outside of the fences, and you'd have to go chase them, you'd have to rally them, you'd have to herd them back into the fence, and, and so the fences were intended to keep people in. Did you know in Australia, the farmers there don't use fences? They use wells. Because the thinking is, if, if, peop, if, if the animals are aware of where the well is, they will always actually stay in proximity to a well. And so they don't put up fences. I, I, I believe that Jesus actually calls us to himself, who is the well. The one who has water that if we drink from, we will never grow thirsty. A water that every human being longs for. And when we miss out on the message of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we actually start to build fences. Now that fence might be drinking alcohol. It might be drinking too much alcohol. It might be getting, you know, alcohol is okay, but getting high, that's bad. Getting high is bad. Um, but if you're high in marijuana now, it's okay because, you know, marijuana is, is okay now, right? Because they, they, they legalized it. Um, oh, it could be divorce. You know, one time in church history, it was divorce. You know, if you were divorced, you know, you're a part of them, part of us. You know, we, you know our marriage kind of stayed together, and so, so we're, we're on the inside of the fence. It could be addictions. But, you know, just like the golf game, you've got to figure out which, addiction, like, which addictions are appropriate, which ones aren't. Because there's, you know, there's a, there's a ranking of addictions, you know? Like some, some are okay, some aren't. You guys, you guys know what I'm saying, right? And, and so depending on... Where you are in history, what culture you live in, what time in history you live in, these, these fence markers, they change. But Christians, unless they actually identify Jesus as the well and recognize that Jesus is just calling everybody to the center, Jesus is calling everybody to the well, we have a tendency to want to figure out who's in and who's out. Many Christians spend their time chasing cattle like I did with my grandpa and my uncle. They, they just chase cattle. They spend their energy trying to figure out how to get people in the fence, how, whatever fence line they think is the right one. But Jesus has the water of life. We don't need to spend energy putting hundreds of fences up if we can simply show people where they can rest, where they can drink, where they can find life, where, where the deepest desires of the heart are actually realized. And this is what Jesus refers to as the, the good news. And we're going to come back to that in a second. So this is how enemy making happens. There's beliefs, and these beliefs come from the Bible, certain Bible beliefs. We read, it's like, oh, that's good, that's truth. And then in our culture, we're like, we got to focus on this belief because this is what's happening in our culture, and then we start to make distinctives. And then these distinctives eventually become banners or fences, which is nice because then we can figure out who's in and who's out. 
And then over time, the people that are out actually start to get treated like enemies. This is the enemy-making machine. In Leviticus 16, everybody say Leviticus 16. It describes this idea of a scapegoat. And we talked about how the machine works, uh, but I want to spend a minute talking about why. In Leviticus 16, God explains this process uh, to his people about a scapegoat, that you would identify this goat, that because people wanted to be in right relationship with God, right relationship with, with others, they were, they were aware that they messed up, that they were sinful, and how do we make this right? And, and God said, select a scapegoat. And then they would create this these, uh, these ribbon necklaces, and they would, they, would, they would write their sins individually, corporately, around this necklace, and they, they, would put it on the, they would put it on the goat. And then somebody would take that goat, and they would lead it into the wilderness, away from the people. And this became known as a, a scapegoat. It's a way to take the, the sin, the, the anxiety, the pieces that we dropped and didn't mess up, the, the, the questions about where we're standing with each other and with God, that we would put it all in this goat and we would actually remove it out of the community. And there was a sense that when that happened, that the people could live at peace knowing that they did what God asked them to do, and now they could be at peace with God and be at peace with each other. The intention of this was to keep unity and peace with God and with people. Of course, this is just a foreshadow of something to come, but the people at the time didn't know that. If you want to understand how scapegoating works, it's really easy. You show up to a playground at any school near you, and you'll see it at work. I remember being a student driving in my small town to school, in elementary school, and students K-12 to went to the same school, and I went to the school in junior high and elementary school with grade 12ers. And for whatever reason, I was identified as a kid that would be a good kid to pick on when I was younger. And so there was a guy who sat at the back seat of the bus, and whenever I came on the bus, he told me to come sit beside him. His name was Chris. So Chris says, come sit beside me, Matt. Um, and I didn't want to risk not doing what he said because I didn't know always what that would mean. And so I would sit beside him, and... He would tell me to count the telephone poles from my house to the school. And then he would say, for every telephone pole you miss, I'm going to punch you. And so I'd be like sitting in the back seat like, one, two, three, four. And he'd be like, you missed one, bam. You missed one, bam. And so uh, there was a lot of telephone poles in that five-minute bus ride from my house to the school. I don't know how many because I know I missed a lot. Uh, but there was more than I can count, I'll tell you that. And, and so... I don't know, for whatever reason, I got selected as the kid that this would happen to. And he'd sit back there with all of his buddies, his high school buddies, and this was a fun game for them. And I'm like, why does that happen? There was another kid, uh, another teenager when I was in junior high. Um, for whatever reason, he called me Karate Kid. And I don't know why he called me Karate Kid. Um, he, he thought, I thought I was a tough guy, and he needed to prove that he was tougher than me. And so uh, he would... He would find me at recess time, at lunch times, and he would, I remember him holding me above the toilet uh, uh, when I was in junior high. 
I remember him grabbing me by the neck, him and his buddy, and holding me up in the bathroom stall by my neck. His name is Tony. I know, I probably could have done a lot with that name, but uh, I lost my bravery. Why? I'll tell you why, because when you pick a scapegoat, it brings a sense of peace. It brings a sense of unity because it's not, it's not you. And it actually gives an, a person, a group, uh, to be against so that you can collectively feel united and at one with others. And I know how it works because as I got older, I figured out the game. I remember being in high school. And, and so I, 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 made, I was on some high school sports teams in my younger high school years. And I recognized very early being around with the older, cooler high school kids that played sports that there was, uh, there was scapegoats out there. And if I could actually move from being the scapegoatee to the one who's scapegoating, uh, then I could experience unity and peace with the group of people, which is what I wanted, right? And so uh, lunchtimes we play King of the Hill. I remember a game of King of the Hill, and there was one kid that I, nobody liked. And I got in a fist fight with him. And, I, and he was two years older than me. And it was a good notch in my belt. And other kids in school were like, okay. You know, now I shifted from being the, the one who was being scapegoated to finding a scapegoat. And now I was in and I experienced unity. I experienced peace and I experienced belonging and all these really, really good things. Dwight Eisenhower once said, the search for a scapegoat is the easiest of all hunting expeditions. Quick Bible story. Luke 8, 18. Sorry, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So you see the, you see the uh, narrative of scapegoat already. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. I follow the rules. Now, the Pharisees were teachers of the law. They had read the Bible over and over and over and over again, and they, they knew that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there was 613 laws. Everybody say 613. That's a lot of laws to follow. Am I right? Well, they wanted to make sure that, that they were right with God, right? So they took these laws, they took these beliefs, they made distinctives, right? They said, God, we want to follow you. And so, and to make sure they, they followed God, they added like, like different kind of amendments or emendations to, the, to these laws. And there was another 1,500, 1500 sub-laws to the 613 laws, for example, the, the fourth commandment, you know, keep the Sabbath day holy, you know, rest on the Sabbath day. You know, they wanted to make sure they didn't, they, they wanted to make sure they did rest so that they were obeying God. So they made all these rules about what rest actually means. So they actually had a law. They had 39 extra laws underneath the keep the Sabbath day holy. How do I know what keeping the Sabbath day holy means? Well, it's all these 39 different things. So one of them was you could only walk, you can only take so many steps on a Sabbath day because if you took more than that, it was considered working. 
you know, my, my kids, they got these Fitbits, and at the end of the day, they're like, you know, 20,000 is this competition, you know, uh, this is pre, this is like the unfit bit, you know, the, 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 the the, you can just picture the Pharisees if they had Fitbits. It's like, how many did you get today? Forty-three. I got seven less than I got last week. You know, that's, you know, they're they're trying to see who can take the least amount of steps. I see people walking all around the place. I'm like, oh, that that's one of them. That guy took 150 steps. I saw him walk from that that corner to that corner, and I know exactly how many steps that is. He didn't obey the Sabbath, right? So they have all these lot, they have all these um, layers of rules these distinctives that become fences or boundary markers, and then they could figure out who was in and out. And they knew very clearly who was in and out because they had figured it all out. They're working as hard as possible to be obedient as they can. It came from a good place originally. You guys understand that, right? It came from this desire to to be in right relationship with God and to obey God, and that was good. They were professional holy guys. They worked extremely hard at it. In fact, I don't know if anybody has worked harder at it than Pharisees to live in terms of their behavior in the way that God told them to in Scripture. But see how the story continues. There's a tax collector. So you got the Pharisee, then you got the tax collector. And now a tax collector was a Jewish trader who decided to exploit his own people and work for the Roman Empire and take money from their own people and often take more than they needed to to provide for themselves and live a wealthy life. So this Jewish trader exploiting his own people is used in the story in comparison with the Pharisee. And you could see in that culture that tax collectors became an easy scapegoat. It's those guys. They don't care about the law. You know, they turn their backs on us. They, you know, you can see Pharisees kind of getting together, talking about tax collectors. Now listen to this. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you pay attention to the prayer, the Pharisee, in his prayer, was based on his comparison with other people. Do you see that? Thank God that, thank you, God, I'm not like this person. That person's outside of the fence. I'm inside. I thank you that I have the ability to obey all these 1,500 rules, and I've done it pretty well. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he's not comparing himself to other people. He's actually comparing himself to God. That's the difference. The tax collector compares himself to God, recognizes that God is holy and that he is on a different playing field than God and humbly comes before God, can't even look up to God, beating his chest, standing at a distance. He's not worried about other people. He's actually just thinking about him and God. And and God says that posture of humility has made him right before me. A saint... Thomas Merton said, is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who has experienced the goodness of God. Scapegoating. One of the most haunting passages, haunting verses I think I've ever read is this verse here, Luke 23, 12. That day Herod and Pilate became his friends. Before this, they became enemies. What day was that? That was the day that they teamed up together to crucify Jesus. 
Before that, they were enemies. You know, Herod, this puppet Jewish king, and he had Pilate who was working for the Roman Empire. They didn't, you know, they were, they were in competition in some ways with each other. They didn't want to work together. But all of a sudden, they had a reason to work together because they identified a common enemy, which was Jesus, allowed them to come together. And what did they experience when they came together? Unity. What did they experience when they came together? Peace. It felt good. Someone said to me yesterday, they used the term, I'm just trying to be the devil's advocate. And I was like, that's an interesting term. What does that even mean? And I went and Googled devil's advocate. And apparently in the Catholic church, when someone was trying to become a saint, there was a role that, that would be identified for an individual called the devil's advocate. The church had a role for a person called the devil's advocate. Get that. And the role of the devil's advocate was if someone was like being, you know, nominated or whatever for sainthood, uh, would grill the saint, would like research, would the, would they, they would find out, you know, if there's anything, you know, some bad history about that saint that the community didn't know about, and they would ask them questions. And, and if they could accuse them enough, if they would break down in the process, then they would lose uh, their, their pathway to becoming a saint. That was the role of the devil's advocate. They would have someone designated to simply accuse the saint. If they were found to be any clear such accusations, they couldn't move forward into saint saint status. You know what the name devil means? The name devil or Satan, which is the devil's name, means accuser. Means accuser. Can I just say this morning that I don't think the devil needs an advocate? I, I don't think he does. I don't think the devil needs anyone to team up with him, to help him out. The Holy Spirit, Jesus calls the paraclete, which means advocate, comforter. I believe God needs an advocate. I believe the love of God, the grace of God, the mission of God, the heart of God needs an advocate. Do we partner with God or do we partner with Satan? Sorry to say it so bluntly. But the enemy-making machine at its very essence is satanic because it, it runs completely off of identifying and accusing individuals or groups of people in an effort to create peace and unity. And we as Christians get deceived because we believe peace and unity are very good things. And so we deceive ourselves into thinking we are doing God a favor when we might just be a devil's advocate. Counterfeit unity. Counterfeit peace. I don't care what the group is. I don't care what the person is. If your source of peace, if your source of unity it actually comes from having an enemy, then it's satanic. Paul is clear in Ephesians that our enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, authorities of of the spiritual realm, against Satan and his demons who exist to accuse, to divide. The heart of God is for all people to come to a saving knowledge of him, for all people to be in the family of God. 
the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the kingdom of God is identified by what we're for. Listen to this. Make every effort to keep ourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, unity peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Our unity as a follower of Jesus, if you say, I'm a Christian, your unity does not come from a common enemy. It comes from a common Lord. Your unity comes from a common Lord. Your, your peace that you sense comes because of what Jesus has done. What makes the church church? I've been thinking about this question for a, couple, for a few weeks, actually, probably a few months. What makes the church church? I've alluded to it already over the last couple of weeks, but you, you could stay at home. You could watch a sermon online, but you came here. Why? You can listen to great worship music, and you came here, and the music was great, wasn't it? I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't great. Jamie did a great job with, the, with her team. But there's like... Professional, world-class musicians putting out great worship albums. You come here and you see people you probably don't even like. And you avoid them in the foyer. Why do you come? What makes a church church? I, well, probably a lot of things. But I think one of the primary things that makes church church there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All of you are all one in Jesus Christ. What makes the church church is that people that previously had no business being together are actually in the same family together. And so that's why small groups or, you know, home groups, I would actually argue it's not church. Anytime you self-select who you're going to be with and who you're not going to be with ceases to be church. I know people say, well, we're two or three are gathered in your presence, or two or three are gathered together, there the presence of God is with them. Yes, but uh, there's more to, I don't have time to get into that. But uh, they, there's more going on there than just that. When you self-select who is in and who is out, you have ceased to be church. One Lord, one baptism, it's accessible to all people. If they desire to make Jesus Lord of their life. Which means that when you come to church, you know, think about it. Paul, who wrote this, you know, was overseeing, you know, the martyr, the deaths of Christians. And so imagine the guy who's been killing off your friends and he shows up at your church community. You know, that's a pretty good reason to avoid him and kind of create a separate church, don't you think? I, 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 know, I would think so. But, but Paul now is part of the church. You have masters, you have slaves, different economic classes in a society where you get to treat a person like property. Now they come into the church family and they're brothers and sisters in Christ who need to treat each other with dignity and equality. When you self-select who you're going to follow Jesus with, you're not actually being church. Pink Shirt Day. Any of you guys been a part of Pink Shirt Day? 
few of you guys have been in high schools, right? You've, been, you've, done, you've done pink shirt day. In 2007 in Berwick, Nova Scotia, there was a boy who was being bullied. He was being bullied for wearing a pink shirt. For whatever reason, that boy became the scapegoat of that, of that school. There was two kids in high school, David Shepard, Travis Price, and their teenage friends, and they organized a high school protest, and those high school boys saw what was happening to this other boy in their school, and they said, it's not going to happen. And so they realized he was being bullied because he was wearing a, a pink tank top. And so they bought 50 pink, pink tank tops. They got all their friends, and they came to school the next day. They all put on pink tank tops. And the kids that were bullying that kid were never heard from again, never bullied him again. And I read, a, I read an article that talks about the experience of the kid who was bullied that, you know, came into the school and how that felt when he realized that there was people that were advocating for him. As you know, Pink Shirt Day has taken off in every school because scapegoating and bullying is an epidemic. And I truly believe that if the church was being the church, that we wouldn't need such a thing as Pink Shirt Day because people would have advocates. Now, I don't have a pink shirt, but I have pink shoes. I was looking for a pink shirt today, and uh, I didn't have, I, I couldn't find one. My wife said, you know, you got, there's a pair of pink shoes. Uh, and if you want to know the story how I got pink shoes, it's just because my wife thought these were nice shoes and ordered them without looking that they said size 15. So they, uh, they, they fit me really, really well. Now, I, I wore these shoes to church today intentionally. And it's been really hard for me not to justify I was wearing, wearing pink shoes when everybody was talking to me. Uh, I walked up to church and I had a, a, nice, uh, a nice one of our teenage greeters greet me and said, he looked, and I could see he was looking at my feet when I was walking up to the church. He wasn't even looking at my eyes. I'm getting closer, he says, pink shoes, eh? He's like, I didn't think you were the type of guy that would, would, wear, would wear pink shoes. I don't know what that means. Uh, I said, oh, okay. Uh, and then he looked and he said, oh, they're Nikes. Oh, good brand name. I was like, at least you, know, you got the brand name right, so, so you know, maybe that's okay. And then I, I walk in here and, you know, I come sit, sit with the worship team and Jamie's like, Matt's wearing pink shoes. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's trying to celebrate my uh, individuality. She's like, good on you, Matt. You know, she's like encouraging me or whatever. Uh, but I, I'm just curious, how many of you guys noticed I was wearing pink shoes? Okay, how, how many of you had the thought in your head, why is Matt wearing pink shoes? Did anybody, did anybody think that? Did any of you guys like elbow the person beside you and say, hey, did, did you see, like, did you know, like just be honest, like this is confession time. Did you notice that Matt was wearing pink shoes? Anybody? Okay, some of you guys did that. Now, what happened in that moment? I became, I know this is just a little, little point, I, I became a, a scapegoat. And you're like, oh, that's a little over, isn't it? You know, but what happened when you elbowed, when you elbowed the person next to you and you had that thought and you maybe had to laugh at my expense because I was wearing pink shoes and like that's kind of weird and, 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 you, you, and you've kind of found someone that also thinks that pink shoes is ridiculous and, and you guys said, look it, he's wearing pink shoes, that's ridiculous. And you had this connection. You had this connection. You had this unity. There was this peace that happened and it felt really good and it felt holy. It, it felt holy. Because isn't, isn't community, isn't unity, isn't peace, isn't that like a, those are godly, biblical things, right? Not 
all pathways to unity and peace are Christian. Jesus, you know, you know, this is what I think happened. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, had pink shirt day. He became the scapegoat. He became the, the goat in Leviticus 16 that was the foreshadow to Jesus. And Jesus says, put all of your anxiety, put all your conflict, put all your sense of competition, all your desire to be the best, uh, all your desire to be in and not out. And he says, everybody can be in. You don't have to try and push and compete against each other. You don't have to play the religious game and try and get close to me because I came to you. This was ultimate pink shirt day. And Jesus says, if, if you're going to follow me, you need to know a couple of things. A, you're in the family because of my grace and my love. And as soon as you decide who gets grace and who gets love, you've actually decided to play a different game than the one that I'm playing. I'm creating a family that is for all people, that is founded on sacrifice, that is founded on my love, that is founded on my grace, and I'm inviting all people into relationship with me. And my, and Jesus is praying in John 17 for the unity of his church, that they would, that people would know that God is who he said he is, Jesus prays, because of how unified they are. Now just say, how unified are we? How easy do we actually play the satanic game of identifying scapegoats and enemies? And we look to that and we think, hey, we feel good. We feel like we're in community. It's them, not us. We got unity. We got peace. Now, now we're all coming together. And that is opposite of the kingdom of God. That is exactly contrary to what Jesus was doing on the cross. I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able. And I said at the beginning of the series that this series was going to take courage. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about if you have been wounded by others, how do you actually move uh, to a place of healing, of forgiveness, of restoration? But I'm going to invite you to actually take a bold step this morning. And I'm just going to ask a question. How many of you have or are scapegoating in some kind of way in an effort to find unity and peace in your life? How many of you? It could be another person. It could be a group of people. I know this is, it's like, I'm not going to put out my hand for that. It could be another person. It could be a group of people. It could be other churches. It could be, you know, people that are clearly um, not living the way that God wants them to live. But we, you've identified somebody and you're passionate and your friends talk about it, and it brings me. How, how many of you guys, when I talk about scapegoating, are like, I can see that in my own life? Jesus invites us to put all of that onto him. I'm going to invite you if, you, if you put up your hand, and if you feel so bold enough, I'm going to invite you actually to come to the to the front. This is scary stuff. I'm going to invite you to come to the front. And, and you're like, I'm, uh, you know, and I think if most people are, are, are honest, they would come to the front. Um, but I want to invite you to come to the front. 
there was this, in, in Leviticus 16, there's a community thing that we recognize what we're doing and we're, we're actually putting this on to the goat. And Jesus says, no, there's no goat, there's no person, there's no group, there's just me. And we're putting all of that onto Jesus. That Jesus self-sacrifice, his grace, his forgiveness actually becomes the thing that binds us together in unity. It becomes the thing that brings us together as the family of God. Maybe some of you feel like I've been self-selecting. I pick and choose you know, the types of people I want to be, be at and I've actually called that church and you actually recognize that's not church at all. You're, you're creating a golf country club with your own rules and fences. ask one more bold question. Thank you for coming to the front. We're going to pray for you in a minute. Some of you feel like you have been the scapegoat. You've actually been the object of other people's ridicule, judgment. You felt on the out. You haven't felt like you belonged. I'm going to invite you to come forward too. felt like other people have come together at your expense and that's been hurtful bad Christians have happened to you you've been hurt by people that said I'm a follower of Jesus and they actually have done hurtful things to you Jesus, they have misrepresented Jesus to you Jesus says to the tax collector or what we see in the story is that it's, it's the humility and the posture that's what God is looking for for every one of us you know we hear these phrases you know love or hate the sin love the sinner I just I don't even like that phrase um, I think what we see you know Jesus says take Take the plank out of your own eye so you can see the speck in your brother's eye. I think what Jesus is saying is hate your own sin. Worry, worry about your own sin. Hate your own sin. And focus on loving me, coming to the well. And invite other people on the journey. Testify to my goodness. Testify to my love. Testify to my grace. And for some of you, that hasn't happened. Let, I want to pray for you. Um, and if you got the... Uh, sorry, this... Uh, I know, Matt, you're getting really weird here. If, if you got someone beside you, I actually want you to grab their hand. I want you to grab the hand, person's hand beside you. All the introverts, introverts in the room are saying, I'm never coming to this church again. You might not even like the person beside you. And if it's your spouse, then we've got marriage counseling uh, available for you. But you know what? We are all part of the church collectively because of what Jesus has done. And we don't self-select because Jesus wasn't selective. He was, he was generous. And he said he, his death and resurrection is for all people. And so we hold hands together in the messiness, in the pain, in the hurt, in the mistakes, in our tendency to scapegoat other people, in our experiences where we've been scapegoated. And we come back and we say, Jesus, we're sorry. And we recognize that these are my brothers and sisters. And we are the family of God. So Jesus, I thank you for how you 
are speaking to our hearts. Lord, I thank you that you have given us um, the ability to be aware of the schemes of the enemy and how the enemy works and how this enemy-making machine works. Lord, we recognize that you have not come to kill, steal, and destroy, but that's the role of the enemy. That's the role of the accuser. You have come to be an advocate, to be a comforter, to be an encourager, to point people towards the source of life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as individuals and as a community not to find unity and peace in a cheap, counterfeit way by identifying enemies, but to find unity because of our confession and our repentance and our understanding that we are all in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you in this moment. Lord, I thank you for each person who has humbled themselves towards you. And, Lord, we thank you that we can be a family together because of what you've done on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who have been hurt, for those that have been scapegoated. I've experienced what it's like to be on both sides of that, and I think we all have. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that that was a misrepresentation of who you are, And that in the same way you invite them to place that hurt onto you, the Lamb of God. You invite them to receive forgiveness and to extend it to others. And Lord, you know what each of these folks that have been hurt need, and I pray, Lord, that you would minister to their hearts, that you would heal their hearts, that you would help them to trust other people again, and that you would help us to continue to walk together as the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, if you'd like to stick around and have someone to pray with you, uh, they would be available for that. Let me pray. I'm going to pray, and then I would like, uh, Jamie, if we can just end on the course just with their voices, uh, that would be awesome. That's how we'll end. thank you that you are the cornerstone, that you are our foundation, that you are the reason why we come together in unity, why we can have peace with each other and with you. Lord, not because of how righteous we are, not because of how much we've figured out, not because we have common enemies, Lord, but our unity and our peace is founded in your sacrificial death your willingness to come to earth to be the scapegoat that would take away the sins of the world. I, I'm reminded of John the Baptist who says, behold, there's the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. So Lord, thank you that we can leave all this at your feet. Thank you that we don't have to, work, we don't have to take your job and be judge of the world. We don't have to partner with the enemy. He doesn't need a devil's advocate. Lord, I pray that we would partner with your spirit to be advocates for people. That we would testify to the living water that you give each and every one of us because of the grace and the forgiveness that we receive. We pray these things and we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.